0: Thank you, Brennan. Do you ever find yourself um, a Sunday morning, just looking up on stage and thinking, man, do we have some talented people, musicians, vocalists, our tech team back there. Um, we We couldn't do what we do. And their whole role here and back there is helping to enhance your worship, to lead you as a congregation in worship. Well, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. Some of you have family members, um, particularly children who live far from home, and you know, you'd know you love for them to share the day with you, wouldn't you? Um, here's something you might wanna consider. It's a call to action. Um, the day before Thanksgiving, a man in Phoenix called his son in New York and said to him, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. 45 years is enough. We're sick of each other. So please call your sister in Chicago and tell her. Frantic, the son called his sister who exploded on the phone. There's no way they're getting a divorce, she shouted. I'll take care of this. She immediately called Phoenix and said to her father, you are not getting a divorce. Don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back and we'll both be there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. Do you hear me? The man hung up the phone, turned to his wife. Okay, honey, it's done. The kids are coming for Thanksgiving, and this time they're paying for their own flights. (laughs) So if some of you are wondering how to get the kids here, that's the way to do it. As we enter the fourth chapter of the first letter of the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, Peter puts out a call to action. And it's based upon his teaching of the example of Jesus. An example we considered last week. Writing to suffering Christians, Peter exhorts them to take courage and and to have hope considering the suffering of their Savior. This one who suffered unjustly, the righteous for the unrighteous, was put to death in flesh, made alive in spirit and received into glory where all things were subject to him. And in like manner, Peter says that those who suffer for Christ's sake, persecuted, even put to death, would be made alive in spirit and taken into glory on that day. This is the great hope they and we have in Christ. It's the hope that's spelled out in the beginning of Peter's letter. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, Chapter 1, let me remind you of something we looked at the very first week. 1 Peter, chapter 1. And I want to read starting at verse 7. Back up to verse 3. Let's get the flow. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter builds on the example of Jesus as he gives three appeals or three exhortations all pertaining to lives that imitate Christ, that honor Christ, and that give witness to his life within us. And so he's going to say, live rightly, pray effectively, love earnestly. So let's look at him. One of Peter's concerns is how the suffering Christian lives before those who are not believers, those who even persecuted them for their faith. How easy it would be to give up, to give in, to to just think it's not worth the cost. Suffering has a way of producing tunnel vision, doesn't it? It's like the blinders on a racehorse. you know, All you can see is what's in front of you, nothing to the sides. And how easy it is for our perspective to be skewed when we're going through tough times. But Peter exhorts us to take our eyes off our circumstances and and put them on Christ who was an example of submitting to his Father's will even in suffering holding on to the hope of God's promise of glory. In all of this, we're reminded that it's not our great faith that holds us firm. It is the faithfulness of a great God, of a loving Father, of a God whose ultimate purpose is at work in our lives. Many years ago, a captain of an English ship sailing near Turkey was caught in a storm. Because there was no harbor nearby, he let the anchor down, but the wind blew so fiercely that it began to drag the anchor. It just couldn't get a grip on the sandy seabed, and so the ship began to drift. Another anchor was let down, but it too refused to take hold, and the ship was drifting closer and closer to shore where it could be run aground. There was only one little anchor left, Uh, The captain was sure that it really wouldn't be of any use, but he ordered that it be let down, and to his surprise, the chain tightened. Soon the ship was held fast, and by the help of the little anchor, it rode out the storm. When the time came to lift the anchors, the, the big ones came up easily because they hadn't caught on the seabed. But the little anchor refused to come up, and they pulled and they pulled, and at last it came little by little, And it was so heavy, something came up with it. It was another anchor. The little anchor had caught in the ring of an anchor of a great battleship that had sunk there years before. And that's why the little anchor held so firmly. God's faithfulness. That's what anchors our hope in his promises. It isn't the size of our faith, it's the size of our God that we hold fast to these promises of hope. This is the God to whom Jesus entrusted his life. And that's why in chapter two, that we looked at a while ago, Peter says this, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's the key, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. So how are we to respond to the example of Jesus? We're to imitate him. We're to live rightly as he lived rightly. Look at Peter's exhortation. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Peter says, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, he comes back again to this idea of Christ's suffering. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who's able to judge and ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. How are we to imitate Christ? Peter says two things. One, think the same way he thinks. Wow, scratch your heads a little bit here. How how is that possible? It is because of an absolutely amazing thing. Look what Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians. He says this, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How can that be? Well, it is because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. If you put your trust in Christ, the Spirit of God has invaded your life, lives within you. And then we understand the importance here then of the mind, it's in our thinking that spiritual transformation takes place. That's why Paul writes in Romans twelve two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It begins with arming yourself with the same way of thinking as Jesus. Um, that leads us to the second thing. Live rightly or righteously. In doing so, we put aside the way of life before Christ. Remember, that's what we just read. We close the book on a life that is characterized by unrighteousness. And it's all a matter of choice. It's engaging the will in saying no to self and yes to Christ. It it is choosing to do what is right. It is choosing to serve the right master. There's a wonderful passage in the book of Romans. Just turn back a few books. It's a lengthy uh, passage, but I want us to look at it because it's so profound for the topic that Peter is addressing. Romans chapter 6. Follow along. Let me read. Starting at verse 1. Now, let me set it up, because he comes out of the end of chapter 5 and talks about when, when the law came in, it increased sin, because all of a sudden you were aware of what was wrong, what was sin. But he says, but though sin may abound, grace abounds all the more. So Paul imagines then somebody out there saying, let me, let me get this right. If I sin more, I get more grace. Well, then... I better sin more. And so he opens chapter six and says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It just doesn't make sense. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It goes on, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It read literally in the Greek language of the New Testament it means to be deprived of power. That that old self, who we are in Adam, apart from Christ, that might be deprived of power then in us. And so he goes on to say that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It's all about our union with Christ, that we are so identified with His death, His burial, and His resurrection, that we've experienced those things in a positional way. Now, there are some consequences, some results that ought to follow from that. And that's why Paul says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Now Paul begins to imagine what, his, what the people might be thinking, so he follows up. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In other words, every person is a slave. It's just a matter of to whom, to what? Are you a slave to unrighteousness or are you a slave to righteousness? And then he says, but thanks be to God that you that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. So if you're a slave to unrighteousness, serve unrighteousness. If you're a slave to righteousness by virtue of coming to know Christ, then serve righteousness. It's very common sense, isn't it, when you get there? So when we put our trust in Jesus for salvation, we renounce our former way of living, the pattern of life, the culture, the ethics that was really our life before. And now in Christ, we're called to a new life, to a new ethic, to a new pattern. Peter also warns them that, listen, when you do that, you may find that some of those friends you hung out with don't think a lot of that. Maybe some of you have experienced that. When you came to faith in Christ, depending on who you were running with before or what your life was like before, all of a sudden, they can't understand why you don't want to do those things anymore. They don't understand why you want to go those places anymore. They may even malign you, he said. But Peter says, remember, one day they will have to give an account. They'll have to give an account of their lives at that time. One day, God who judges the living and the dead will balance all the books. Everything will be set right. So live rightly. Imitate Christ. Live by his example. Choose the path of righteousness, for it's the way of Christ, even if it means suffering for Christ's sake while doing good. Live rightly. Then Peter moves on, and he talks another exhortation. He says, pray effectively. Look back in 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, a lot of scholars interpret that different ways. It could mean that the idea that the end of the world is coming. And remember, I think when you read the New Testament, you get a sense that a lot of the the New Testament apostles believed that Jesus was going to return even in their lifetime. So he might be referring to that. Others believe that he might be referring to our physical lives. Listen, the end is at hand. Every one of us is gonna die. Last time I checked, 100%. And so with that in mind, with all of that that's coming, the end of things at hand, therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded. Isn't this interesting? For the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. Peter says that there are two things that will ensure that your prayers are effective. The first thing he says is be self-controlled. This word in the language of the New Testament means to be steady in mind. Uh, It also means to preserve your sanity. The New Testament scholar William Barclay writes, the great characteristic of sanity is that it sees things in their proper proportions. It, It sees what things are important and what things are not important. It's not swept away by sudden and capricious and transitory enthusiasms. It is prone neither to unbalanced fanaticism nor to unrealizing indifference. It is only when we see the affairs and the activities of earth in the light of eternity that we see them in their proper proportions and their proper importances. It is when God is given his proper place that all things take their proper places. Remember how the Apostle Paul identifies self-control as a part of the fruit of the Spirit. When he writes to Titus in his letter, he exhorts us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The writer of the book of Proverbs um, speaks about someone without self-control. He says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Admiral Phipps was commander of the British fleet in 1750. I love reading history. I'm reading a trilogy right now on the Revolutionary War. It's just just, just amazing to see all of that was going on at that time. But, but um, Phipps was there in 1750 when the British and the French were fighting in Canada. uh, The Admiral was commanded to anchor outside Quebec. And he was given orders to wait for the British forces to arrive. And and when they did arrive, then he was to support them when they attacked the city. Uh, Phipps' navy arrived early. And as the Admiral waited, he became annoyed by the statues of the saints that adorned the towers of a nearby cathedral. So, he ordered his men to shoot at them with the ship's cannons. No one knows how many rounds were fired or how many statues were destroyed, but when the land forces arrived and the signal was given to attack, the Admiral was of no help. He'd used up all his ammunition shooting at the saints. The folly of a lack of self-control, and of course, we can see it on a personal level as well, Count. There's a second thing that Peter says will make your prayers effective, and that is be sober-minded. Peter used the same term back in chapter 1, verse 13, when he wrote, Therefore, having girded your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word sober-minded means to be calm. It means to be collected in spirit. It means to be temperate, dispassionate circumspect. Uh, It speaks of the state of mind in which a person is self-controlled. In fact, the same root word is for both of those things, self-controlled and sober-minded. It's the ability to see things without distortion, distortion caused by worry or fear or whatever. But this sanity of mind, this calm and this circumspect mindset leads to effective praying. When God is, is in his proper place, and everything else begins to get ordered around that proper place, then the mind is set to effectively engage God in prayer. And that's where we recognize how important prayer is and what a need that we have for prayer. I ran across this quote from um, John Piper this week. It's it's, it's humorous, but probably true and sad. Um, He writes, one of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook, will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Hmm, so true, isn't it? Peter gives another exhortation, it's in verse eight. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Don't forget the call of the two great commandments according to Jesus. Love God with everything you have, with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then go out and love your neighbor as yourself. That love with which we are to love others is the same kind of love with which we are loved by God. It's a a selfless, sacrificial love. It's a love which, which is concerned about the interests of others and what's best for them. It's really easy, and I have to admit, very understandable to get all focused upon and wrapped up in ourselves when we're going through tough times, right? Don't We, we, we tend to circle the wagons, and it's understandable. Yes, again, back to the blinders on the racehorse. But God calls us to always be outward-focused. It doesn't mean we don't think of our own situation. It's just that we don't think only of our situation. Peter says love earnestly. Uh, Some of your translations it may say fervently. It literally means stretched out. Kenneth Wiest in his word studies of the Greek New Testament says the idea is that of a love that is extended to reach the one loved. It is the act of one who instead of living a self-centered life gives of himself to others. This Agape love, God's love, is able to be commanded because it isn't primarily an emotion. It is a choice. It is an act of the will that I will act toward others in a loving way. So Peter goes on to say, listen, let me, let me tell you two things or two ways in which you might love others. One is to show hospitality. Look at verse 9. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, this was something very important and very practical in Peter's day. Hospitality in first century Middle East life was a cultural obligation. It was a cultural responsibility. And we know that Peter experienced it frequently and firsthand as a disciple of Jesus as he moved around the countryside. He experienced it when Jesus sent out the 12 to preach about the kingdom of God and, and was able to, and said, to go into homes where they showed hospitality and accepted you there. Remember, no holiday inns, no Marriotts in the first century. People traveled from place to place, especially those in itinerant ministries in the decades after Jesus' ministry. And so they depended upon the generosity and the hospitality of others to provide a place to stay, to provide a meal to eat. Now, we can't quite relate to that particular situation in our day, can we? And so let's broaden it just a little bit. Uh, For the sake of application, I think it would include opening your home to others. Maybe someone who's at a particular time of need. Maybe it's somebody who needs the, the encouragement of fellowship together. Maybe it's someone whose family is not here, but you can be family to them for a moment. Um, maybe somebody is going through a very difficult time and needs a, a cup of tea, a cup of coffee in your home. Uh, I think this exhortation fits well with our emphasis on neighboring, of reaching out to know our neighbors, to, to meet our neighbors, to greet our neighbors by, by name. Well, Peter gives another way that we might express love towards others, especially believers, and that's to serve them. Look at verse nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's intent here is not to give a complete list of spiritual gifts. Paul does that in many of his writings when we put it together. Um, But Peter seems to focus on these two categories of serving uh, to make his point. One is preaching or proclaiming the word of God. And the other is the practical serving gifts. And so we see in what Peter's saying is that the purpose of these gifts and the use of these gifts is to serve the body, is to serve believers that are a part of this thing called the church. They're for the benefit of all of those that are in the church together. So they're to build up, they're to edify, uh, they are to inspire, they're to instruct. And Peter says, listen, the result of doing that is that it brings glory to God through Jesus Christ. Listen, the exercise of spiritual gifts is never intended to shine the light upon the one exercising the gift. If you see that, you know it's not being exercised the way that God intends. When gifts are used and serving others, they will always be directed toward the giver of the gifts. They will always bring glory to God and point to Jesus. That's that's the way we tell whether the exercise of gifts is along the biblical lines or not. So, as life moves on towards its end, live rightly, pray effectively, serve, I'm sorry, love earnestly. Live rightly, pray effectively, love earnestly. In other words, keep on, keeping on, imitating Christ. Now, before I go to our dialogue time, I, just, I, I feel like I need to say something about the partnership. Because you see, in some way, and it sort of defies even my ability to get my hands or fingers and eyes and head around it, but there is a partnership between you as the believer and the Holy Spirit of God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, and he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, and here's the reason for, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. In other words, God sees this as a package deal. It's that you work together in concert with, in partnership with the Spirit of God. It has to do with your spiritual growth. It has to do with your spiritual service. Imitating Christ is not just a matter of trying harder. Been there, done that. Maybe you have too, and I'll tell you, it doesn't work. So we need to go back and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to let him sit on the throne of our life, to yield our lives to him. That's what Paul talked about in Romans 6. And allow him, as we apply our heart and our will to his will, then this partnership comes together, and we serve, and we love, and we pray, and we live rightly. That's the challenge for us in this thing called the Christian life. Well, let's pray. Lord, you don't um, leave us without direction into how we're to live our lives. And more than anything else, we're called to imitate the one to whom we've been called to be a part of. And we thank you that the Spirit of God takes up residence within us when we trust in Christ. And then he lives his life through us as we apply our lives to obedience, to holiness, to righteousness, So thank you, Father, that you have shown us how we're to live. We thank you for sending your Son who lived his life that we might observe it, that we might know it. Thank you for the scriptures that show us his life. May we apply ourselves to that such that our lives bring honor and glory to you through Christ our Lord. And in his name I pray, amen.